Hello, and we are the makers of history. With me, Foz, and Ross. So, right, Ross. Hello. What's been going on then, mate? Uh, not much. It is a nice springy day. I've got some delicious beer in. Uh, all good. How are you? Yeah, well, it's been very springy day for me, but it's been, like, raining. And then, like, <laughs> it's glorious sunshine outside at the moment. And Because I've been driving around all day. It's literally hammering one second and then glorious sunshine and hammering it and glorious and just like non-stop going between the two. I was literally like cycling on my bike in the sunshine to the beer shop. It was, it was lovely. <laughs> That's very picturesque. I can imagine. Yeah. I don't know. I guess you got some tasselage on the handlebars and Bring a him a little bell. Yeah, you got a little bell. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see that. <laughs> a 33-year-old dude just riding down the street on one of those. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the local village children are throwing stones. I don't know why. Oh, What's nice. on your drinking menu? Uh, well, I'm not actually on a beer. I'm on <sighs> Tullamore Joe, Irish blended whisky. I would describe Tullamore Joe as a cheap and affordable. I like an advert. We're not sponsored by him. I just really like it. <laughs> So I don't know what happened there. I saw the bottle and I, no, so it's really nice and it's cheap. You know what I mean? It's an everyday whisker if, if you could have such a thing. I know it's a cheap one, so I wasn't sure if like it was good it's enough not, to like no, I don't it's not cheap, drink cheap. It. It's like the same price as Jameson's, so it's just like a run of the mill sort of whiskey, but it's easy to drink. Two ice cubes, jobs are good on. Thank Fair you. Enough. What about yourself? What are you on? I have got uh, a Pernstein. So it's a thing in Czech Republic, like, basically every town, every city has its own brewery, right? And this is a little bit of a tragedy, tragic story, because Pernstein is closing down, so these are oh, the last... Bugger. Yeah, these are my last local beers that are available to oh, me. Oh, shit, have they been brought out, or...? They were bought, like, basically, like, a hostile takeover from Starry Brahman to <sighs> prevent them from competing. Yeah, it happens, do not it? And it's, it's now being turned into flats. So they've got this beautiful uh, brewery building in the city centre that's, like, from the late 19th century. I think it's all stylized to look like a castle. And that's now going to be flats, because, of course, it is. Oh, man. Oh. Yeah. Bad times. Yeah, it <laughs> happens, though, Darren. It happens with everything, then, the little ones get absorbed. Yeah. Oh, see, they might be. You might, you might be worth keeping hold of one of them. It might be worth something. You never know. <laughs> you know, it's a beer that's not been made anymore. I'm sure somebody mm. would buy that. Like, even in two years' time, it'd be like well old. Like, I'm sure somebody'd still buy it. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it's got like a use-by date of June of this year, which is worryingly short for a pasteurized beer. Oh, is it pasteurized? Uh, I think so. Okay. I thought it was anyway. If it um, is, it'll last a long time, probably. I don't know. Like, they, I think that's what they've like literally swept out the warehouse and just sent it down to the yeah. shop. Like. <laughs> oh, nice. So, what you got to tell us today? Then, where did we leave off last time, bro? All right. So, last time then. So, we talked about the um, <clears throat> the kind of the major power diplomacy. And we talked about the war fighting, uh, and we talked, of course, about the uh, drug use. Yeah, man. And by pure coincidence, the week after there was an article in the Guardian. Um, of the f- archaeological finds in the Balearic Islands, and it's the first confirmed drug use in Europe. Oh, nice. Um, and it's from the same period as we're talking about, so like 1500 BC, more or less. Uh, uh, so there is a link to that on our Twitter at Makers of History, which you're welcome to go and follow. Yeah, that was a good, we got a was a good plug there. Yeah, yeah, we were just talking. We had to plug the Twitter, we need to tell everyone about Twitter. 
So yeah, follow us on Twitter, and we have updates about the channel, and we also put in some kind of fun historic facts in there. I like um, your fun historic facts. I like the little facts you put on there. Obviously, because I don't have push notifications, I don't have my own Twitter, but like, I like to go on our Twitter, and then I'll be like, oh, what's Ross put on Twitter today? And I'll have a little look at us, because obviously, it's my way of saying them, any. <laughs> I appreciate them, bruv, so just keep doing them, I like them. I'm glad you do. At the moment, we're mostly followed by AI-generated porn accounts, so yeah, um, that's, I think we found our audience. <laughs> yeah, that's... You know what I mean? That's what the listeners are. You know what I mean? That's what they are. <laughs> so, who are we to judge? They're clearly not some sort of Twitter-following bot machine or nothing. They're just the fans, mate, so you got to make peace with That's our fan base. <laughs> so where were All we? Right. What were we going to talk about, then? Yeah, so I think what we'll do is we'll start by talking at kind of like the generalities of what these societies are like, sort of a general picture that's applicable to all of them, more or less. Um, So what we can say, all of these cultures that we're talking about were urban societies, i.e. everything is about the city, power and people are focused on the cities. Um, and especially within the city, you have the palace complex, whether it's the king or the governor or the you know the sub king that's a vassal, and you have the temple complexes. I'm guessing they have a lot of power in that, don't they? Like the temple people, like with yes. Any, any civilizations, otherwise that the religious heads always have a lot of power, don't they? Yeah. So the organized religion is a big deal. Um, I mean, when we go back older than our period, it's kind of the first organisation of the oldest cities is around the temple complex and kings kind of emerge later. Okay. Um, so especially in like Mesopotamia, so Babylon, Babylonia and Assyria, the temple structure was very well established as well in Egypt. Mm-hmm. But on the top of the pile, at the very top of it all, we have in all of them one single king. All of them are um, absolute monarchies with one king at the top. Top, top, um, top geyser. Exactly, big man. Mm. Uh, you have this permanent kind of hierarchy of priests and organised religion, like I said, to go with it. And in Mesopotamia, you have city gods. So each city is associated with a specific god who's seen okay. as the god of that city. But wouldn't you have crossover? Because surely there's not enough gods for all the cities. Yeah, I think it's more like the major ones, the older ones, ah, to be honest. Okay. Right. Um, so it's like they'd have the conception like, okay, all of them are the gods, but this one's our one. Okay. Um, and the other thing that kind of unites all of these different cultures and kingdoms is their societies are incredibly unequal like they have a small elite at the top who live in like ridiculous luxury and then a huge mass of people at the bottom who are oppressed by everybody else the sorry <laughs> people part of the palm <laughs> See, I, I mean, wouldn't mind I th- being the rich people. I probably wouldn't want to... If I was going to go back, I probably wouldn't want to be the sorry people. I'd probably be... You know what? I was thinking people. about this, because I was like... thinking, apart from, like, you know, the whole horrifying diseases and dying of toothache at the age of 24, <laughs> being a Bronze Age elite must have been one of the best times to be alive. Oh, Just yeah. sitting in your palace, smoking your opium with your multiple wives, like, not doing fucking anything. And fed grapes Having... and dates and all kinds yeah. of mates or anything... all of the dry fruits yeah yeah that'd be great Um, and I think what makes the late late Bronze Age interesting and compelling is in lots of ways it feels very modern but then it kind of takes a sharp left turn into something (laughs) insane yeah yeah it's absolute (laughs) insanity yeah yeah much like today much like today's world to be honest 
Uh, so I think it feels kind of modern and relatable in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so let's talk first about like these social elite centers. We've already talked about this huge trade network that existed basically to sustain the elites. Um, so one thing we can say is that the elites were international. You know, there's people that's going on diplomatic missions, people who are going on trading missions. Um, you know, as we said, all of this diplomatic correspondence is being held in Akkadian, not in the local language um, of of each kingdom. There's reason then to think like this elite is kind of like the modern like international super elite. Um, super elite sounds like you, a you know what I mean, like. <laughs> No, but you know what I mean. Like you yeah, know, there's yeah. people like the the modern elite, where everyone speaks English. They all watch the same films. Everyone you know watches Wes Anderson films. They all go to the same universities. Mm. They all study the same thing. That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So something like that, you know, what Alex Jones would call the globalists. <laughs> you gotta watch out for them globalists. <laughs> um. So there's reason to think that maybe these people at the top would have preferred to speak the Akkadian language, so the language of Babylon, rather than their own local language. Um, a bit like, if you think of, like, you know, in Russia, the elite were speaking French or German. Oh, okay. Well into the 20th century before they were, like, uh, 19th century before Russian replaced them. Um, okay. One of the reasons to think this is that we don't just find Akkadian language uh, diplomatic correspondence, we also find literature so Babylonian literature is found everywhere okay um, both in the original Babylonian and also in translation and like we were saying before that we also see the influence of that literature coming into the uh, local stories local local mythology you know what that reminds me of Latin what? yeah as a language you know like... if you think of, yes if you think of like medieval world where everyone spoke Latin like that but like now, like say, like a hundred years ago, there were still posh twats like learning Look. Latin at, at top universities, weren't they? Yeah, exactly, exactly like that. So, so I think there's good reason to think that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, like as we've said, like these elites, they had like lots of resources and they had lots of luxuries. And one of the things that comes with this is there's lots of building, huge amounts of building work being done. Like cities grow, they become much bigger. We have like, you know, monument building, palace building, and lots of art being created, like carving, sculpture, that sort of stuff. Pottery, the yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. Sorry, God, God. I was just going to say, there's, there's there's loads of pottery and stuff like that found, isn't mm-hmm. there? And that goes alongside with like, that's a new technology, if you think about it, like this massive influx of pottery. Yeah, I mean, pottery is like one of the best cultural indicators of who is living in an area. Mm. Like, we can see, okay, the pottery style changes, so different people are here, but we also see the trade of uh, a distinctively Greek pottery style maybe turning up everywhere. Um, All of these, you know, buildings, the palaces, the temples, all would have been very highly decorated, painted, um, you know, elaborately carved. There was a distinctive international style. So you see kind of the same elements on this like super elite architecture appearing in different cultures. So either they're copying each other or the same architects and artisans are traveling around building the same palaces. Okay, that's interesting. Not their their high class styles. Yeah. So like uh, Eric Klein in his book, he gives an example. There's an Egyptian palace which has um, wall paintings of people jumping over balls 
which is a distinctively Minoan style from Crete. But okay. this became fashionable. You start seeing these Minoan paintings in Egypt. Oh, okay. Um, that's culture then that's like real culture if people are collecting art and appreciating art that's yeah and you know there's there's fashion the trade of it like that's exactly so I think we can see that the elites live a lifestyle which is probably fair to say like elites in Babylon and Egypt and and mostly in Greece live more like each other than they do with the poor people in their own country Mm. um and one kind of aspect of this is again a bit like modern elites with gated communities is the elites physically separate themselves away from the mass of the population so either they literally have like closed off districts of the city that are just for them or I think we mentioned before like that they build whole new cities out of nowhere Mm. just for the elites Um, to give one kind of example of this is the uh, Hittite capital place called Hattusha so Wait, is that sorry geographically now today? Uh, central Turkey. Okay. Hattusha itself is on top of like this huge rock, heavily fortified city, and then within this within this like rock that's built on at the very top is another fortified citadel, and that's where the elite lived. Okay. So it's like you already have this city, which is probably like the higher class anyway to be living in it, and then the real elite are separating themselves again inside the city. Okay, so what sort of these would be like your high-level clergymen, maybe uh, governors and things like that? Bureaucrats, uh, warrior elites, that sort of thing. People at the very, very top. Okay. Um, And part of this building as well is like one of the ways that the kings try to make their mark is building new cities, creating new capitals. Um, We talked about it before, we talked about the Amarna letters. They like go and build a new massive city normally it's named after the king who built it and then when he dies the whole thing gets abandoned and they all go back to the old capital anyway it's interesting because like you said all this building's going on brick technology had already been about for what almost a thousand years because bricks the first fired bricks like bricks what you'd imagine today they didn't start they appeared in like 3000 BC so that's well before how long is that before what we're talking that's a long like a, time another 1500 to 2000 years before so yeah so that sort of imagine the on scale masonry that's involved in like making all that to build mm. these cities if a lot of the stuff's not no if it was made out of brick they still use other ways of building like we spoke before the Egyptians never never used wood fired bricks not until the Romans got to them mm, which is what they using uh, just clay, like... a clay brick okay. like clay out of the river shaped into a brick and then like you said sun dried and that's it that's that's that you know once it's dried you can pull off the the banding or in their case it'd be like reeds like mm-hmm. sort of wooden spikes in the ground lined with reeds to keep obviously all the clay to channels um but yeah that was it that's that's pretty much all, all they used and until the romans so the romans when did they start appearing in north africa thousand years after our time period like yeah so they were obviously happy with it it must have worked for them <laughs> there's a uh, surprising little wooden frame structures as well found that's majoritively was used for the important buildings like a full mm. wooden like wooden frame building uh that, that was like reserved for important buildings like not everyone's like houses okay. weren't made like that um they were like the, i mean that obviously really makes old, sense like, when you think about it mud like, wall, you know... thatch roof yeah 
Because, I mean, obviously it's not like, you know, the forests of Egypt is not really a thing. It makes sense when you think about it logically. Yeah. Like. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a thing that you really conceive of, like, that wood would just be purely as a, a, a luxury indicator, let's say. It was interesting you said that about the forests of Egypt, because I know we said we weren't going to talk about the pyramids. Because it's way before, or they're way <laughs> before. But there's something that you've said there that links. That's actually one of the reasons why, like most people know commonly, one of the one of the ways that they built the pyramids, these massive stones. A lot, a lot of people believe they use like wooden rollers to roll the blocks along. Mm-hmm. That seems to be like the most accepted hypothesis. But they are, there's a, actually a valid argument against that. The amount of wood you'd need to get through, because you'd wear on them so quickly. There's not mm. enough. You'd have to deforest Egypt, let alone. <laughs> do you know what I mean? There'd have to be zero. You'd require yeah. that much wood to do it. That's just an interesting little factoid I found out today about the pyramids. Which, again, I know is a thousand years before <laughs> what we're talking about, but I still wanted to talk about it. It's old. It's so it's close. It's only a thousand years out. Yeah, but you know, that's sort of like big monumental building. It's still going on. Like when you look at the big Egyptian temples from the period, you know, it's huge masonry blocks. The same. Concept, yeah, too. yeah, the cat sound concept, and obviously they're using like various pulleys and levers to move things around. It's amazing, like from a fulcrum point, which is just like if you imagine like a crowbar, like you've got the long end of the crowbar, the little mm-hmm. end of the crowbar, you can push the crowbar down lightly, but you can lift a very heavy weight like fulcrum point. It's amazing mm-hmm. what you can do with that. Obviously, in my job, sometimes I'll be on a machine, say I can't get a nut off because it's it's like just really tight on I just smack it with a hammer and then I'll do it again and half time it'll come off just get a proper whack with a hammer and it'll come off there it's amazing what a bit of you know a bit of oomph can do that was the most brummy engineer sentence yeah, yeah. ever I just hit it with the hammer well sometimes things need it in with hammers and I think that's I think that's actually an Egyptian mantra that I've picked up <laughs> so I mean okay so let's talk about been now about the people who would have been doing the building so let's talk about like the ordinary people the sorry people the sorry people um <laughs> so i mean for the reality of most of the people that aren't like you know living in the city living the good life the vast majority of them are going to be involved in farming of some sort so we have kind of a few different uh farming sort of systems going on kind of the the main bulk production is like cereals like grains and and fruits like dates and the way they grow this is with these huge irrigated systems because you think obviously it's mostly a desert or arid environment with rivers so they build these huge water systems to manage the flow of water onto the farmland try and you know keep the fertility of the land going keep it that regular and this is the major food source in in drier areas away from the river, so we think like in the you know, uplands of Anatolia, we think away from the river, lots of sheep and goat herding. And if we think of the marshes at the kind of the head of the river, lots of farming of uh, water buffalo oh, okay. as a source of meat and milk. And of course, a lot of fishing as well, because it's you know, rivers and seas. So for the most of the people are going to be involved in farming. And basically all of like the society for uh, the ordinary people breaks down into two distinct categories one is the free people and one is the palace dependents so the distinction is 
the free population owned their own land. They you know, grew on the land to feed themselves and their families. So it was their land? It was their land, but the flip side of this is they were poorer because they only had what they could grow and sell. Okay. The other half of society is the dependence of the palace. So, they also are working... You know, the the peasants and this structure are working the land, but they do not own the land. It's owned by the state, owned by the palace, and they are working on it. So they work their day, but they are not making the food for themselves. They will get, like, a ration and a wage from the palace oh, okay. in return for labour. Mm-hmm. And this kind of system worked... This didn't just include the poorest people, it went up to the richest. Uh, so the, you know, the craftsmen, the artisans, up to the top, to like the, the government administrators, would receive a salary from the government. At the lower end, it's literally, here's your food. At the top end, it's like, here's your chariot and your pile of opium and your fancy yeah. clothes. Um, but it's basically like a completely centralised command economy. Um Distinctly... Smart way to do it if you were going to make your own little economy going there, weren't you? <laughs> Go, I'm the king. Yeah, well, you actually, everything you own is mine. Yeah. But I'll give you food and money, but everything you got's mine, basically. That's just a big dick move, ain't it, really? <laughs> yeah. So th- this is why they call it the palace economy. Like, literally, the palaces have these huge storerooms in the ruins that we find, and it was all about, like, they just receive all of the produce in, and then they distribute it out. And this is also how people stay loyal to it. Like, you know, you're not going to rock the boat too much if you're getting your food and your money and your opium and your chariot Oh yeah. distributed by a government. Yeah, yeah, damn straight. If you're getting that sort of level of handout, then you'd love it, wouldn't you? It's like, that's the argument for communism, I suppose, isn't it? If it works, <laughs> it's fucking great. But, you know, unfortunately, corruption gets the best. <laughs> I think we just invented, like, Bronze Age monarchic communism. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, though, don't you? If you're happy, if it's all working, that's great. But unfortunately, these things don't work, do they? This kind of works for a while. Quite a while, to be fair. Um, one thing that we distinctly don't see that much of is, like, a capitalist economy, i.e. working off your own labour and having your own reward of your fruits of your labour. Mm. There is an argument that's been put forward by some people that the part of the collapse of this was like capitalist competition. Um, but Eric Klein in his book kind of dismisses it. He's like, maybe it's a factor, but this is not a thing that was going to bring down the whole system. Okay. Anyway. So, the free villages then. So the people that are free, not the palace dependents, not receiving the handouts, they have to pay tax. And they also have to provide labour. It's called corvée system. Basically, whenever the state comes a knocking, you have to go and work on the projects. Um, they own the land. Normally, the individual people didn't own the land. Rather, they owned it as a community. So instead of being like, Foz owns this field, it's like, the people of Foz's village own this field collectively. Oh, okay. um, so yeah, they're paying back you know, the, the tax and they're providing labour. But in return... The palace is organising, you know, the irrigation system. It's keeping that going. If the palace isn't doing that, the land's going to dry out really quickly. Mm. And no one's going to be able to live there. Throughout the time period, the government's become increasingly repressive. 
they become more authoritarian, more controlling of the people, much stricter in the rules that they enforce on society. Um, and this becomes more extreme as it goes on. And why was that? Um, I think the reasons for it are twofold. First is the states get bigger, they get more complex, and as we said before, like the scale and amount of war increases later in the period. So this means the state bureaucracy has to get bigger, more complex, and obviously like elites grow. If you have a great job as a government administrator and you have like four kids, you want them to be government administrators as well, mm-hmm. not to go and be like shit farmers. So <laughs> what a job! <laughs> <laughs> With your water buffalo. Oh, I'm going to go crop today. <laughs> um, so obviously, there's a tendency for the top levels to grow, right? And so for this one thing, like, there's more demand, more need for extracting from the peasants, right? To get the whole thing going. Uh, Secondly, is like, there's a shortage of labour. And again, it's kind of related to that. As the thing's getting bigger, it needs more support to keep up the weight. There's not enough peasants. So they become much more controlling, much more repressive um, to stop them getting ideas, basically filthy peasants with their ideas yeah and one of the things that comes up is a genuinely horrifying system of debt slavery Mm. getting into debt was a really fucking bad idea in the Bronze Age Um, so the way this happened so you're a free villager right and you have the taxes for your village which were high to begin with and they got higher throughout the period right then you have a bad harvest you can't pay the tax well no you've got to pay it mm. there's no accounting for oh that's a bad year we're going to release the, the burden no you have to pay so what the peasants had to do then was take out a loan and there were predatory lenders out there with like 50% interest rates <sighs> wow who would lend money for paying the taxes but then, like, you're borrowing just for the purpose of paying tax, not for anything productive, so yeah, it makes so the cycle worse. Yeah. Exactly. So next year you have a normal harvest, you've got to pay the same tax, and you've got to pay 50% interest. Now, even in a normal year, you can't escape. Yeah. What happens to you? This is where it goes. Once you have debt to someone, they can own you if you can't pay. <laughs> just like that is that yes. it they just own you for indefinite yeah. or like until you paid off the debt so the, that's we, what and they... that's also dictated to by the person who's just enslaved you and it's charging interest on the debt you owe while you're <clears> making <throat> you work and because you're working on their shit you can't go and make your own shit to pay the debt so you mm. can't escape and you know Wankers. so you fail once and then you keep failing yeah so people just get trapped in this debt cycle they need to unionise the sorry people. I think they did need to unionise. That was their problem. <laughs> I think that was the problem. Um, as it turns out, payday lenders have been fucking shit throughout the entirety of human history. <laughs> yeah, they've never been the good guys, is all you say. <laughs> you say, like, those people have never been really helpful. They <laughs> <Great> benefit <laughs> to the society. <laughs> Mad, isn't it? So the only way to get away from this was literally to just run off and live in the, in the wilderness as an outlaw. And they even had a specific word for this, which was Habiru. And huge numbers of people did this, and they went off as large organised groups, and they're like, well, fuck this shit, and fled out into the wilderness. Ah, oh, that's wicked. 
obviously it's like dangerous for them because for one thing they're okay. now outside the law and they're targets of state there's fucking dangerous animals out there mm-hmm. um, and these guys like lived as bandits so that's when we talked before about like you know the state gifts being sent between the kings going missing yes. one of the usual explanation was Habiru took it is, yeah nice that's cool that is um, so, all of the source there somewhere for a film or a book or something it is some sort of Robin Hood with chariots yeah yeah that'd be weird <laughs> <laughs> with the green hats and the bow and arrows <laughs> That'd be great. I'd watch that. So, like, all of our written sources, which, bear in mind, our written sources come from state perspective, Mm. always talk negatively about these people. Always they're robbers and murderers. But, I mean, they would say that. Yeah. And they're probably not saying that when they're hiring them back. Exactly. These Habiru groups also get hired as mercenaries. Yeah, of course. They're prime people for that, (laughs) aren't they? That's the one thing. People who live outside of the world, like civilization in the woods. They make perfect merc fighters, wouldn't they? Yeah. Be hard so, as fuck, man. <laughs> you want to mess with them woods people? Furry's like desert woodsman. That's the that's the most dangerous kind of woods to be in. The desert a... woodsman in the forest of Egypt. <laughs> yeah, the forest of Egypt. Dries a bone. Oh, man. Fucking want... fighting off the jackals. You, That'd you, be you a hard your... life. And lions yeah. at this point. Lions would have been roaming through North Africa. Definitely by this period. They only went extinct in the last couple of hundred years. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's um, there's the one... Uh, I didn't research this. I just already knew it. There's the one <laughs> that's... There's the, like a North African lion of some... It's got a name, and it's named after something in North Africa, either a country or a mountain range. Yeah, what's the mountain range in North Africa? Uh, Atlas Mountains, maybe? Atlas, Atlas Lion. That's what Is it's it? called. Oh, yeah, cool. There we go. It's completely off topic. As you were, Ross. No worries. Okay, so, I mean, how do we get into this situation? So, earlier in the period, the state, like the government, would every so often help people just abolish the debt. Um, you know, there's practical reasons to do that. You know, part of it is about the ideology about the king. Like, the king is the figure of justice. He gets rid of these bad money lenders and he frees everybody from their debt. Also, practical terms, it prevents the elite from amassing too much wealth and power. Obviously, if you're like a shitlord moneylender and you've concentrated all the wealth, you're becoming too powerful. It's an alternate power (laughs) base. Similarly, if all of the peasants have now been enslaved to shitlord moneylender and they're working on his land, the tax base for the king is now fucked. So the kings had good reason in the earlier parts of the period for why they would just every so often just declare the debt gone. Later on, they're not interested in doing that. Like, when we talked about the treaties, we mentioned a big thing was about the return of fugitives, and that's what we're talking about. People fleeing from debt would be handed over and given back. So why did the kings do this, though? So again, I think... Free labour. But, I mean, I think the reason why they stopped cancelling the debt comes down to the elite gets bigger and more powerful. And the second factor is the need for maintaining bigger armies and bigger, more organised state structure. Again, you kind of think, if you're a shitlord moneylender and the king's abolishing debt, he's not like, you know, paying off everyone's debt. He's just like, I abolish debt. And if you've been lending money, well, you've just lost all of your money. Yeah. So now if you're the king and you're relying on these elites who've been lending out their money, you can't do that anymore. If you need them to be your chariot warriors, 
you can't un- undercut their uh, money lending racket. Yeah. Mm. So I think this is why, as the period goes then. on, essentially, I think it's like just the way the money floats to the top. Mm. And if there's no like mechanism to stop that, eventually, it, like you know, it's it's like playing fucking Jenga. The more weight you're putting on the top and having less and less at the bottom, the whole thing is going to come down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes total sense. It's mad how that's like that long ago, and we're still talking about like people being in like payday loans it's mad and yeah. it? It, it does blow your mind when you think about this it's like how long I always get this is it 2000 and just under 3000 it's about 2800 it's years ago two and a half uh, no it's more than that it's 3000 to three and a half thousand years ago and we're talking about payday loans yeah. it's crazy man that's what I say to you like, like I wasn't just doing a bit like it to me it's really mind blowing how modern this feels like because when you talk about like ancient Greeks it doesn't feel modern in the same way whereas this does yeah, like people living in cities for working for salaries. <laughs> it's fuck. It's mad, man. It's really mad. Blows blows my mind. You, you, I don't know. You're just always having like Bronze Age. You still think like scantily clad cavemen people. That's yeah. what I always thought before I knew any of this stuff. I, like, I was like, you know, like a caveman gaze. They're like borderline Neanderthal. But, yeah. Nah, it's not. Is it? These are like real people. Like living real lives suffering yeah. these horrific fates <laughs> heartbreaking really yeah anyway so um, where I wanted to go next with this was I think we start doing a bit of a deep dive into the our kind of our major players that we'd picked out at the start the big boys the big boys okay. and I want to start with Mitani so Mitanni, to kind of recap, it exists across the top of northern Iraq, um, northern Syria, into like the southwest corner of Turkey. Um, this is the least well documented of our major powers. The reason for this is the capital, which we know was called Washukani, has not been discovered yet. Ah, okay. So that'll completely unfold the thing when, when that that's gets found. all the libraries yep. and stuff. Exactly, yeah. So we don't okay. have much from their perspective. Is there much going on at the moment? Like, uh, trying to uh, find that, do you know? There's stuff going on. Unfortunately, what's going on is the Syrian civil war, so no. Oh, was that where it would be? <laughs> it's exactly where this is. Uh, oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah. Well, this that answers is... that question then. Yeah. <laughs> so it might get all blown to shit. <laughs> this is ISIS country, unfortunately. Okay. Um,. So yeah, so we lack good documentation of it because we don't have their own records. We don't have um, one kind of like distinctive document from the era, era and the period and the region is the king lists. So basically, like scribes just kept repeating like the lists of who was king as a way of like repeating the memory. Was like, oh, in this year this was king, and this year he was king, and then they keep adding to it. So from this, you can kind of tell the evolution as kings get added and they're repeating back for themselves who was king before we don't have this for Mitanni okay so it makes it hard to like we might have a name but we don't have a context okay so like you know for Babylon we can find you know King Dipshit the first and we're like ah he ruled after King Fuckward and before King <coughs> Dipshit the second we don't have that context with Mitanni okay so stuff could Stuff could change when that's found. Cause that's they're, they're big. They're important to this time mm-hmm. period, aren't they? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. 
and because they are the least well documented there's even like amongst archaeologists and historians a lot of debate about who these people even were so what we do know there's an ethnic group called the Hurrians who speak a language which is in like the language and the language family is now extinct so they spoke this language which but if they... you thought if you had to guess what it sounded like would you be able to do an impression of it right now <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with no. Oh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. I was looking forward to see. Maybe when we finish recording, you can do it for me. I mean, like, the like we know the language exists. We know, we can read it, but, like, there's nothing uh, nothing today that's related to it. Um, like, Akkadian has a relation to languages like Arabic and Hebrew, whereas, like, uh, Hurrian, nothing alive today connected to it. But we can read it. We can but read you can, I was literally about to say that, but we can actually read it, yeah. Yes. So there's connection with the Hurrian people. Now these people emerged um, somewhere in the period before when we're talking about. They probably came from the Zagros Mountains in the western part of what's now Iran. And there was certainly some sort of like Indo-Aryan, so like Iranian Indian cultural element. Okay. Not the mass language though. The Hurrian language is not in Indo-European. Now, there's a bit of debate about what this means. So, again, our two main sources, Eric Klein and Mark van der Meyrup. Eric Klein's interpretation is that you have a Indian or Iranian social elite ruling over Hurrian people. Van der Meyrup doesn't think that's what this is, but that the Indo-Aryans are kind of a cultural element within this culture. Okay. Uh, he points out, like, I think it kind of comes down to whether you see them as an invading people suddenly appearing, or a group that's always been there. Mm-hmm. Van der Meyrup points out that we have records of Hurrian names in the area like a thousand years before when we're talking about. But that could just be a few individuals. It could be like the vast majority of people came in later. Yeah, you can't take a lot from that, I suppose, can you? Yeah, so there's a debate on this one. What we do know is there's definitely an Indo-Aryan element, though. They worshipped some Indian gods. They worshipped Mitra and Varuna, which are like gods within like in a classical Hinduism. Possibly the Indo-Aryan were like the military elite. There's a word in Sanskrit, which is like the ancient Indian language, Maria, which means warrior. And across our region, in our period, the word Maria Anu appears, meaning chariot riding warrior. So okay. it could be the case that they've arrived uh, and they've brought in like Indian chariots with them and everyone's like, oh, that's what that is. Kind of like, you know, how the word tank in like Russian is tank and in Czech is tank. Yeah. Oh, okay. Are these the dudes that are like well known for being the chariots? Are these the first people that... Yes. So, so they... I saw something... Um... I think, I don't know whether it was like a, a research paper or I, I saw something online and it was saying that they were like well known for their chariots and yep. I feel like I saw somewhere that said they may have been like the first people to use them on a large scale for military purposes, is that correct? Yes, so no, they yeah. may have introduced horses and chariots. Okay. So the, if we're talking like from what was before like Old Kingdom Egypt, what they had would have been infantry armies and donkeys carrying the supplies. Yeah, okay. But there's evidence for the the 
who uh, the Mitanni introduced the chariots. Um, one of the strongest pieces of evidence for this is that we actually have a horse training manual. It's written in Hittite, but it is written by a guy named Kikuli, the horse trainer from Mitanni. You know, I actually know about this. I, I saw a bit about this as well, and you. They've got interval training regimes and all sorts inside mm. these manuals that were found, and that's only something that they've start reintroduced recently into horse training. Apparently, like it's okay. a fairly modern concept, interval training, and it was found in this dude's book, like that what that famous like training manual about like interval training the horses. Like that's some like advanced shit to know that that's going to help. Oh, you know, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty clever, isn't it? Like, you know, it's, yeah. So, I mean, like, it, it's very detailed manual, and it has, like, you know... It also has terms in there which are clearly Indo-European terms, rather than Semitic, which is the general family of, like, languages like uh, Arabic and Hebrew. Okay. So we have, like, for example, numbers, seta for seven, terra for three, which is clearly related to our numbers. So, I mean, whether they were Indo-Aryan rulers or not... Um, in all of our cultures, we have these chariot-riding elites. When you say uh, Indo, what, whether they're those or not, sorry, what do you, can you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so whether, like the so the debate then is whether the ruling class with these with the Mitanni people came from Iran and northern India or whether they didn't. So they're like a completely different race of people. Potentially, That's what a potential argument is, and yes. they were ruling over all the local people. Potentially. Oh. So, I mean, Klein goes with this. He says, yes, it's an Iranian or a North Indian elite ruling over these Hurrians. Van der Myroop doesn't. He says there's cultural influence, but it's a clearly Hurrian state, who are people from the western edge of Iran, yeah, but not okay. Iranian like we would understand now. Um, so there's a bit of debate on this. The chariot elite in Mitanni were definitely more like medieval aristocrats rather than like urban elite like the other societies they were closer to an aristocracy um the Mitanni state is clearly a new thing um it's in the late 18th century of the uh, BC the region was full of small kingdoms by the 15th century there was only Mitanni um they've been kicking ass and taking names and aren't they yeah they've clearly asserted dominance over everyone else Um, the first references to it are in the context of military campaigns from Egypt into northern Syria and one thing which kind of goes against the Indo-Aryan hypothesis is all of the other states perceived it as being a Hurrian state you would think if it's the case that it was like an Indo-Aryan minority ruling over these people the other states would perceive it as Indo-Aryan. Yeah, that makes total sense. Like, if they didn't, they classed it as Hurrian. These are people they sent letters to all the time, like we discussed last episode. They were sending all these little letters to each other. They're going to know what what they look like and what, you know, their ancestry probably aren't. They're going to know each other fairly well, you'd think. So, I mean, it's a bit like, you think of, like, uh, England after the Norman Conquest. Like, people didn't think that the Norman lords were Anglo-Saxons. They knew that they weren't. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. French dukes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so there was possibly a power vacuum in the region caused by the expansion of the Hittites, removing any potential rivals, allowing Mitanni to grow. 
Um, throughout its kind of flourishing period, it was a major rival of the Egyptians. Unlike Egypt or Babylon, it had a very loose sort of structure. You had a king and you had vassal lords and sub-kings. It wasn't quite so much like an you know, urbanised central government in the same way. Um, Assyria was a region of Mitanni. Assyria had a very ancient history, had been an empire in the past. It emerged probably as a vassal that was very rebellious and difficult to control. A vassal of? Of Mitanni, sorry. Okay. Um, then where things kind of start going wrong is as the Hittites get more powerful and basically Mitanni's entire western part the part closest to the Mediterranean got broken off by the Hittites and swallowed up that's going to completely topple you isn't it if you were on that trade from the yes. Mediterranean trade that's going to cripple you as a country so it takes away like half of their territory and then what's left suddenly the you know the Assyrians aren't just a, re- a rebellious vassal they're now the main player in the region and the Assyrians would swallow up most of what was left so one of the kind of factors in this is probably the royal dynasty was having some internal struggles different branches of the royal family would look for supporters amongst the other powers in the region so you might have like one cousin is trying to be backed by the Hittites to be the king another one's trying to be backed by the Assyrians and eventually in the 14th century BC uh, the king at the time is pro-Hittite and he is murdered and replaced by a pro-Assyrian this prompts the Hittites to take over the western half directly uh... um, and then the rest of what was Mitanni ends up becoming part of Assyria later on oh bugger so yeah Mitanni as I mentioned before is the only one of the great powers that doesn't survive the full period eventually being partitioned between uh Hittites and Syrians. I suppose that's maybe one of the reasons why we don't know a lot about them. Yeah. Because their culture was sort of overtaken with their new overlords and then they move all their stuff in, I suppose, don't they? Yeah. Something like the the diplomatic exchange stops earlier than in other places. It's like, you know, the records stop appearing in other places because they're not writing out. There's less potential evidence to exist mm. um, so yeah that's that's kind of a brief summary of what we know about them as I said they're quite mysterious and we don't even agree about who they were um, so I think a lot of that will be definitely changed once we cover that capital I think it'll be very, very interesting dark on that day I'll, I'll, I'll receive a text off you all excited I know you will <laughs> oh look at the phone oh. <laughs> and they would definitely be able to find that on our Twitter at Makers of History yeah definitely two plugs two plugs nice work bro nice bro <laughs> alright so I think we can probably wrap up there for this episode I think next time we'll continue talking about the the major players Uh, next week we want to talk about Egypt and we want to talk about the Hittites and we'll go from there nice soundproof see you later see you in a bit and don't forget to follow us on Twitter yeah don't forget to follow us on Twitter thanks for listening (laughs) thank you and if you liked what we've done please uh, leave us a review on your platform of choice it helps us reach a wider audience thank you very much bye bye